1: Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, February 7th, 2022. This is episode number 210. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an, an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. Today we're talking about California Governor Newsom taking hits for his inattention to the industry, pro athletes using cannabis, is legalization a buzzkill for weed events, cannabis banking reform is six times a charm, a big recall in Pennsylvania cannabis and alzheimer's and many other frosty nuggets so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the Can- state of cannabis news hour the following program contains coarse language and nudity viewer discretion is advised audience feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read and we'll try to bring you up to the stage keep it brief and relevant or you might get the gone Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. The show wouldn't be what it is today without her expert leadership. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, good morning. Happy Monday, everybody. Uh, My headline actually comes
2: with a bit of a woman on the street Uh, Yesterday, I went to report live in regards to something that I heard a little scuttlebutt of potentially burning of some weed in protest of cannabis taxes. My headline today is actually coming out of the Times of San Diego, and it's in regards to Governor Gavin Newsom under fire as problems grow for the legal marijuana industry in California. And I was hoping, Susan, that you could uh, cue up the clip of um, the Instagram from last night.
3: This represents all the struggling farmers fucking burning weed right now. This is real fucking weed. Oversupply because of high fucking taxes. All y'all in Sacramento,
4: listen the fuck up. 80%.
5: Still illegal market.
4: Just excess cannabis everywhere.
1: It's a very large bag. Go on Instagram so you can see it.
2: So we had a, there was a, a bit of a weed fire. They were all completely contained within bonfire pits in, uh, at Bolsa Chica last night. It was very interesting to watch. I definitely would have to say that that was the first time that I've ever seen 90 pounds of weed get burned all at once, um, but that was actually in regards to what's going on here in California. And the headline in regards to Governor Gavin Newsom being under fire, this article is super long. I really recommend that you read it in regards to what's going on, but I'm going to skim down to the part about industry seeking help from Sacramento. Three days three days after Newsom's pr- pronouncement about stabilizing the market, dozens of small growers from the Emerald Trials, social equity license holders, and other activists gathered on the steps of the Capitol to demand an end to what they deemed the War on Drugs 2.0. Uh, this has actually been going on for a little while now. There's been several um, protests, and there's actually going to be another one this week on Wednesday um, in Long Beach at the City Hall building in regard to the, the taxes that are going on here as well. As the bill idea, ideas circulate at the Capitol, lawmakers are poised to take up the cannabis industry's cause, cause this season. Um, Bradford told Cal Matters that besides the overall tax that the structure that's existing right now, the legislature could address the prohibitive startup costs for marijuana businesses, such as the expansive environmental reviews or requirements for many communities that dispensary owners have storefront rented before they can apply for license opening. This is in regards to to CEQA, people are finding a lot of issues getting through the Sequa requirements. Um, there is a lot of uh, environmental requirements that exist throughout the state of California, and there are a lot of cities that are just very underprepared in regards to what CEQA qualifications and CEQA compliance looks like. There are some cities that will give you um, uh, different types of variances, but when it comes down to it, there's a lot of cities that don't even know where to point you in the right direction, and the state's mandate does require that you have a clearance from sequa in order to operate any type of business currently within the state of California. So there's a couple projects going on in regards to these um, different types of protests. I know that Wednesday it's going to be a big one here at 12 o'clock in um, Long Beach at the City Hall. Super curious to see how it actually pans out. Um, I was very surprised to see how it all panned out last night, and I definitely want to keep you guys informed as things develop. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News.
4: Great on the street coverage nicole uh where, where did he get all that fucking weed Bro, from
2: that's what i'm wondering like where the fuck did the weed <laughs> come from and i mean i know it wasn't metric but like the, i think the whole purpose of the conversation was this is how much uh illicit weed exists but it just like showed up on the beach it was kind of crazy like there was no weed and then all of a sudden there was fucking trash bags and then all of a sudden it was burning it was uh, amazing it was like the weed gnomes showed up <laughs>
4: fucking Elliot. That guy guy needs his own reality show. Stat.
1: It took a surprisingly long time for it to burn. It was a lot. I left before it was done.
2: I couldn't even stay. I was tired. It was, like, still burning. And I'm like, all right, women on the street, out.
1: (laughs) But big buds, too. It wasn't just trim and, yeah, there was... Yeah, it was first though. It was, a was,
2: though. It if- was 100% boof. I did uh, FaceTime Jason Beck while we were doing it so that he could watch because he wanted to be participatory and see what was up. Uh, and Jason Beck can um, definitely say and attest to
1: the fact that it was even from camera. Boof camp.
0: It was 100% boof.
1: I loved your comment, Jason. We were at boof camp. Yes, it was fun. Well, I definitely hope um, that everything goes well on Wednesday. I hope that this actually does make an
2: impact. I know that there's definitely a lot of mixed reviews in regards to how we're going to do this. Um, I do know, and I will make sure to uh, give the disclaimer, I do believe that some of the founding uh, principles behind these tax revolts are um, behind the same organization that runs flow and i know there's been a lot of uh backlash in regards to what that looks like you know uh whether or not they're actually supporting the farmers i think it's very interesting to see a company that is being kind of turned on by the legacy market all of a sudden try to stand up for the market but um you know at the end of the day i feel like in gretchen's words sometimes you got to take what you can get right Absolutely.
1: Uh, We're going to keep moving since we're at time on that headline. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What you got for us today, Rico?
4: Oh, man. So mine's coming out of uh, Channel 2 News uh, from Atlanta. Game time high, up to 80% of pro athletes may be using cannabis. Former NFL player Tavares King, who played for seven years on the Minnesota Vikings and New York Giants, told Atlanta's Channel 2 Sports yesterday he'd probably say around 80% of the guys in the league use cannabis. Interesting. The back and forth he had with Channel 2 Sports Director Zach Klein was fantastic. When asked if if he was one of the 80%, he answered, 100%. Marijuana helped me with anxiety and focus. Playing with it, laser sharp. I was laser sharp, laser focused. Klein replied, so everyone knows you with the Giants Lambeau Field, catching a touchdown pass from Eli Manning, and you were high that game? Yeah, I was. (laughs) You did your job? Yeah, I did my job. I really love this pure, honest interaction. And as a Big Ten starter playing top-tier ball, I was never one of the guys who played stoned, but knew a few who did played on the highest levels and excelled both in college and pros. We pushed back a lot of here on the State of Cannabis News Hour, um, saying that cannabis is not a performance enhancing drug. Um, but I know some folks who it really did help out and it helped them put help put them in their zone and they ball the fuck out. Now DeVaris is actually in the industry and probably pushing his own profile here by drumming up a little local controversy, but I think it's a debate that needs to be had. Some pro athletes with seemingly Superhuman abilities are prescribed meds, and without them, they're just human. Look at Simone Biles, chastised for her publicized mental health struggles during the Co- Tokyo Olympics this year, or last year. Uh, but when, but what few reported on was her ADHD meds were banned, and this may have had negative effect on her preparation, focus, and drive leading up and. Through the Olympic Games, now some people call me a radical, and I agree with most of them. But is it really radical to let people consume what the fuck that they want? It's their body. Performance enhancers go back to the beginning of athletic competition. As long as somebody lost, they'd claim one thing or the other to be at fault, sidestep whatever regulatory measures were in place, take advantage and gain leverage to win next time. Even ancient Greek wrestlers oiled themselves up to slip out of opponents' holds. As Jason Beck loves to say, it's only illegal if you get caught. How, someone, how awesome would it be as a spectator to see fools dunk in from the three-point line like NBA Jam? However bad it is comes from whoever's writing the rules. The inconvenient truth is most modern rules banning advantages in sports are based in some kind of racism. NBA banned dunking in 1956 because Wilt Chamberlain invented posterizing by yoking on vertically challenged white boys. The NFL allows opioids like Toradol, and players say that they can bust through walls on it without feeling a thing. If team doctors can prescribe that shit, but steroids are banned, many of which controversially have no science-based long-term side effects, maybe we need to rethink what performance enhancing really means and accept whatever you're taking to include water uh, as an enhancing uh mood enhancing or a um, performance enhancing drug as well i say let athletes play high let them play high as fuck and fans are are not the only ones they're not the ones literally risking their lives for glory and fat paychecks i'd rather be more transparently entertained as a fan knowing that my favorite sports star is stone whooping yours ass would you not be entertained and not just for the entertainment value but also because it's how those two competitors chose to prepare for battle. On the world's biggest stages, decriminalize everything, and let's see how much more awesome the world can be. This is Rico Lamit, Dopest Dad on the Street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour, and I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this. Back to you. Oh.
1: end the lazy stoner stigma.
5: I think they need the cannabis just to counteract the tra- traumatic brain injury by itself.
4: Agreed. NFL put um, a couple of pennies on it. <laughs>
1: You mean one million dollars? It's
4: a couple pennies to the three hundred nine billion they brought in last year.
1: It's like half a cent.
4: Real talk. bust. <laughs> no, I, I brought
1: Mary. I brought Doctor Mary up from the audience. Uh, we're at time, but twenty seconds, Mary.
6: Yeah, I mean, I I think that we if it, you stigmatize this with athletics, but I mean, if that you have product that makes you better at your job, wouldn't you want to? use the product. I mean, if somebody told me I could be a better doctor if I took this medicine while I was working, I mean, I would take the medicine. I want to do the best I can do. It just seems ridiculous that we keep maintaining this crazy stigma on cannabis use in athleticism. Thank you, Susan. And thank you Rico, good story. Thank you doctor.
2: Well, yeah, thank you so much for that headline, Rico, and we'll go ahead and jump to our next correspondent. Uh, Our next correspondent is Liz Rogan. She's a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and the cannabis health liaison. She's
7: also a pinup girl. What do you have for us today, Liz? Thank you, Nicole. Happy Monday, everyone. Thank you for tuning in today. My story comes from New Cannabis Ventures by Alan Brockstein. The headline reads, Pennsylvania issues mandatory recall for hundreds of cannabis books. So today I'm reporting on a story that I've been following since last year, um, and we're calling it uh, VapeGate in Pennsylvania. Dun, dun, dun. So after sending very vague emails um, in November, a statewide review of vaporized cannabis products, the Pennsylvania Department of Health emailed patients a third time announcing it was recalling some vaporized cannabis products it had previously... In a link to the website, the agency posted a document highlighting additives not approved by the FDA. It also released an 18-page document listing all of the products recalled, which were more than 650 products. And the agency, um, the list consists of the manager and name of the products. Companies with most number of products recalled, included CuraLeaf, TrueLeaf, Parallel, and Holistic Farms. Kim Rivers, the CEO of TrueLeave, said that many of the SKUs of their products are unaffected. Many have already been pulled from the market of this recall, and she characterized the impact to Trueleaf as no worse than others' despite it having most of the SKUs on the list by the state. She also pointed to the irony of citing FDA rules for an industry that isn't currently regulating the cannabis market. They're saying the tr- the state is trying to apply a standard that does not exist. The email instructs patients to consult with a medical professional at their dispensary to help identify which alternative products may be appropriate to you. They're saying that the, um, sorry, they're saying that this email um, is likely to have widespread operational and financial ripple effects and also may be doing a real disservice um, to the patients of Pennsylvania. So this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis Hour. Just wanted to hear if anybody in Pennsylvania has any insight on this as to kind of what's going on. It seems very confusing, and it is interesting as to why the state is stepping in um, into things that they've already approved, and then why are they you know, pulling FDA requirements to apply to this. So I'd love to hear what anyone has to say.
1: I'm wondering if uh, these companies have already paid taxes on these products that are recalled, and if they get their taxes back.
4: For real, Gretchen, good, good you point. have any you have any insight on that? No, you're Pennsylvania proud.
8: Um, I have frankly zero insight on what the hell they're doing. Um, I've talked to some folks up there, and they also just. Don't get what's going on right now. I mean, they do make a great point. It's so ridiculous for them to be citing FDA rules when nothing's regulated by the FDA. Um, this is just I think Pennsylvania administration typically being out of touch uh, with its constituents uh, morons a bunch of
4: morons maybe they maybe they heard that there was some fentanyl in the in the crap.
2: I, I I'm, gonna, I'm gonna disagree with the, dis, the argument on FDA because the problem that we're having here is um, I'm looking at a lot of these things. a lot of, there are vapes for sure. There's seeming to be a decent amount of food items on here too. And so regardless to whether or not we are regulated by the FDA on almost everything else, once we start to make them be a food, a consumable item like that, I, I would have to say that FDA regulations definitely would start to play a part in the in the conversation.
8: I'm not saying that the FDA is not going to matter. I tell people all the time, get ready to play it by the FDA's rules. I just think it's going to breed confusion when it doesn't apply right now. I think people are going to be like, well, what the hell are you talking about? It just
2: seems odd. Also, I think it's funny because it's just like <laughs> boof, boof, and more boof. When you look at the list of the companies, it's literally select, cure, leave. It's like, it's like all of the giant MSO companies that are, you know, in, in a big way, I I would like to see this actually play out in a way that showed these companies how they need to exist. Well, got, maybe
8: I could be crazy, but I think that's all there is right now in Pennsylvania are the big MSOs. They've all bought in and bought out all the little guys. So I'm pretty sure that's all you can purchase in Pennsylvania is big boy weed.
1: We've got Bo, a, Bo Whitney up from the audience. Bo, did you want to weigh in on Liz's headline?
9: Yeah. Hey, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I'm an economist based out of Portland, Oregon, but I've been examining this issue in Pennsylvania. Um, and there's a pretty widespread economic impact on this. Um and it's kind of ironic here that the states insist upon having their own state programs without federal intervention but when they run into sticky issues then they punt over to the FDA so this is a de facto ban on cannabis products now the comment i wanted to make was the fact uh, that but
1: but we're we're at time on this uh, yeah. you're you're new to the show but if you could wrap in like 10 yeah. seconds
9: yeah this is a very similar wording that's being propagated by other states to do the same type of thing. So, Oregon started, Pennsylvania, Washington, Utah. This is, this is a beginning of a trend.
1: Thank you, Bo, and uh, welcome to the show. We're glad that you're here. And thank you for Sticky Issues, I love that. Let's keep smoking the news.
4: Let's. <clears throat> She's a feisty, red-headed conservative with Mayflower roots and an avid supporter of safe banking that never backs down from a debate with cannabis lovers across the aisle. Coming to the stage next is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and the State of Cannabis News' very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. Uh,
8: Good afternoon. Thank you, uh, Rico, for that wonderful uh, introduction there. Salem, seriously. Um, For my headline, uh, I'm coming from Marijuana Moment uh, with my favorite topic, safe banking. Marijuana banking sponsor says he's in amendment talks with Senate leader as House passes reform for six time. The House sponsor of bipartisan marijuana banking bill revealed on Friday that conversations have been happening behind the scenes with Senate leadership about amending his legislation in a way that more specifically addresses equity issues to win their support. Representative Ed Perlmutter made the comments to Marijuana Moment just hours before the House passed the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act for the sixth time as part of a large-scale bill. Members voted 222 to 210 to pass the Manufacturing and Innovation Bill, uh, the Americans compete act, uh, to which the cannabis banking measure was attached via an amendment on Thursday. While advocates have reason to be skeptical about whether the Senate will follow suit given leadership's insistence on passing comprehensive legalization first, Perlmutter said that he's been in talks about revising the legislation in a way that could assuage the concerns of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and colleagues. He said, we have initiated conversations with Schumer and Cory Booker's offices. I've had discussions with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi as to where, if they're interested in X, Y, or Z, we certainly would be interested in X, Y, and Z. It's just time to pass something that rationalizes the banking. Anything else, any criminal justice reform, any tax reform, any research elements, those are all bonuses, and we would look at them in a very positive light. The conversation started even before the last time the House passed Safe Banking Act through its version of the NDAA, but those discussions didn't produce results in time as the banking language was removed, following bicameral negotiations, and Perlmutter placed much of the blame on Schumer. The Senate already passed its related version of the new innovation bill with a focus on competing with China on trade, and the legislation does not contain the cannabis banking language. It remains to be seen that will come out as a resulting bicameral negotiations to merge the two forms of the legislation into something to send to the president's desk. Schumer recently reiterated that he would be amenable to advancing the banking reform if certain amendments are added to further promote equity. But while Perlmutter said he's open to it, he's also cautioned that changing the bipartisan bill too much with new equity provisions could end up spurring some Republican members, including from key players like House Financial Services Committee ranking member Patrick McHenry, to vigorously oppose passage, thus losing needed support from that side of the aisle. McHenry, quote, is not supporting the bill, but he hasn't been a roadblock to us continuing to offer it as an amendment. There are a lot of people and a lot of moving parts to this stuff, and the more we add, the more likely he is to kind of be a roadblock to the amendment. So you've got to take into consideration a number of different players as you move forward on something. Uh, The congressman was also asked whether he's spoken personally to Nancy Pelosi about advocating keeping the banking in the large-scale manufacturing innovation bill, and he said yes, he has, and yes, she will. This will be, uh, like I said before last week, interesting to see if Schumer's going to go after it. I think they are really going to try and add some type of an amendment to it uh, to give some type of social equity provision. Uh, What that is going to be uh, is yet to be seen. Um, I've been through talks, and from what I've heard, uh, they really don't know what they want to add to it. Um, So people need to weigh in. Truly, if you want to see some type of provision added to this bill, reach out to your congressman and say, this should be added. People need—it matters. I know it sounds stupid, but calls to Congress do matter. Letters matter people need to reach out and have their voices be heard if they want to see something happen. This Gretchen was
5: safe banking.
0: Fuck safe banking. Gretchen, Ah, safe banking. Gretchen, what's an
5: example of a a social equity amendment that the Republicans will push back on?
8: Uh, I'm not quite sure what, well, I can guarantee they would push back on something like reparations that Rico loves. Um, but the problem is you have to find something that also Mm -hmm. has to go along in the financial services sector. Uh, that you can actually force a bank to do um i think they need to look at different provisions with the sba i think there are uh, certain minority available loans and things that the government can provide that they could possibly add Uh, perhaps numbers on uh what kind of um benefits people will receive percentage-wise to minorities it just it really depends but it has to be related to banking all right
5: thanks pass
0: safe banking
1: bo bo we're at time you got 10 (laughs) seconds
9: so, my firm just completed a national survey of cannabis operators, and seven over seventy percent of the respondents indicated that lack of access to banking and investment capital is their top concern for the industry and for themselves.
2: Well, all right, thank you so much for that headline, Gretchen and Bo, for your insight and Jason for your random. Uh, Rants. Because up next we have Mr. Jason Beck, longest-running retailer in cannabis in U.S. history, the industry's very own <laughs> hyper brose, international man of mystery that somehow finds a way to get high, higher every day. What do you have for us today, Jason?
0: Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. Fantastic uh, introduction today. And today my headline: Only 42% of cannabis businesses are turning a profit, and women and minorities fare the worst. The new U.S. cannabis business condition survey report released by consulting firm Whitney Economics, and we happen to have Bo Whitney with us today, shows how cannabis industry operators are viewing the success of the cannabis industry and what factors are limiting their growth. Their numbers, their number one concern is lack of banking or financial services, followed by market volatility, big business competition, taxes, according to the report. Operators are kept up at night worrying about how to survive in an environment where there is little support, extremely strong competition from the illicit dealers from one side, and the existential threat of corporate competition on the other. Bo Whitney, founder and chief economist at Whitney Economics, said in a statement, the only solution for operators is to advocate for a level playing field and hope that reform will occur sooner and not later. In In terms of profitability, 20% of the respondents reported making no money, while 37% reported that their businesses are not profitable. Women respondents and non-white respondents are faring much worse than white males respondents, with 45.6% of male respondents indicating they were turning a profit versus 37.5% of female respondents, according to the survey. The survey also notes that from a demographic perspective, the data shows that that the further an operator is from being white and male, the less likely they are to be turning a profit in the U.S. cannabis market. The implication is an observation, which is based upon the data, is that current businesses' conditions include regulations and policies are disproportionately impacting women-owned and minority-owned businesses, it is clear that operating a profitable cannabis business is not easy for anyone regardless of whether one is operating in an emerging state market or in a mature state, state cannabis market. For the market to improve, systemic changes need to be made at both the state and federal levels. In their written responses, cannabis license owners were very vocal that their industry will need support of state and federal policymakers in order to survive and prosper, according to the survey. Well, this survey just tells me even more the reason why we need safe banking. So, in that way, we can help uh, protect our, uh, our our social equity licenses from this predatory investment scam that is totally going around, going around like a bad COVID cough. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour.
9: Bo, did you want to weigh in on Jason's story? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the shout out. It was super comprehensive. Another aspect of this is uh, federal taxation. State and federal tax policymakers don't coordinate on taxation. And so, unfortunately, while uh, businesses are stressed, they're being literally taxed out of existence. And this um, disproportionately impacts smaller businesses, women businesses, and minority-owned businesses. So, thank you. Thanks for that.
0: Pass safe banking. Fuck safe banking.
1: Decapular buzz.
0: Reparations now. Not, no one's giving no reparations, bro. They're going to get taken.
1: All right. Well, uh, we've reached the half hour mark, so we're going to relight this room.
0: You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
2: The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers.
10: Viewer discretion advised.
1: Let's keep smoking the news.
4: Let's... So she's the Plants for Life CEO and a dual board certified physician that enjoys helping folks understand them and manifest the immense power they have over their personal health while using cannabis as it was intended, as medicine. Dr. Felicia Dawson, what kind of news you got for us this morning?
5: Thank you so much for that, Rico. Happy Monday, everyone. My headline comes from La Jolla Light, La Jolla Scientists Study Cannabis Components as Treatments for Alzheimer's Disease and Sports Injury Pain by the Salk Institute for Biological Studies and City News Service. I'm going to focus on the first half of the article because we already touched on the NFL grant uh, last week. Decades of research on medical cannabis has focused on the compounds THC and CBD in clinical applications, but less is known about the therapeutic properties of cannabinol or CBN. But a new study by scientists at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies indicates that CBN can protect nerve cells from oxidative damage, a major pathway to cell death. The findings published online last month by the journal Free Radical Biology and Medicine suggest CBN has the potential for treating age-related neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. We found that cannabinol protects neurons from oxidative stress and cell death, two of the major contributors to Alzheimer's, said the study's senior author Pamela Mayer, a research professor and head of Salk's Cellular Neurobiology Laboratory. This discovery could one day lead to the development of new therapeutics for treating this disease and other neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's. Previous research by Mayer's lab determined that CBN had neuroprotective properties, but it wasn't clear how it worked. The new study explains the mechanism through which CBN protects brain cells from damage and death. So As you know, CBN is the breakdown product of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. It's a minor phytocannabinoid found in aged or old cannabis. In this study, they looked at mouse neurons from the hippocampus that were devoid of cannabinoid receptors. They bathed the cells in two substances known to interrupt The glutathione um, pathway. Glutathione is a major antioxidant in humans and animals and plants. And when you interrupt the glutathione um, pathway, it causes the mitochondria to die. The mitochondria are the power plants of your cells, they produce 90% of the energy that a cell needs. So if a mitochondria goes down, the cell dies. So they um, um, treated these cells with these two substances known to do that, and when they looked under the microscope, it, it truly a lot of cells disin- disintegrated. Now, when they re- treated those same cells, different cells, um, with CBN and then added those two um, killing uh, substances, nothing happened. So the CBN protected the cells from the oxidative. Damage. And so basically, they showed that CBN helps to maintain mitochondrial homeostasis, protecting the cells from oxidative stress induced program cell death. Uh, CBN is a novel inhibitor of this process by targeting the mitochondria. CBN maintains key parameters of mitochondrial function for neuroprotection. CBN protects the nerve cells independently of the cannabinoid receptors and it removes uh, beta amyloid. So you might want to hang on to that old flower after all. This is Dr. Felicia Dawson reporting for the State of Canada's Hour.
1: Do we know how old it needs to be before the CBN starts increasing?
5: I, no, I don't know that answer offhand.
2: I actually, when I do trainings, I tell people about this because I've, whenever I tell anybody if you've ever smoked like really old weed, it makes you feel a little different. CBN definitely has like a different, like more of a, I almost want to say like a medical medicine feeling when you are high and have a lot of CBN um, in your your flower. And I definitely uh, have noticed it. And I would say my personal experience, no science behind this, all bro science, I'd say probably like a couple years, a year and a half to two years where it starts to degrade. And then I've smoked some weed that was like a few years old that I felt like I like, I felt it. But again, no science behind it. Just bro science, bro data. Uh, Can you visually
6: see We've got a doctor up from the audience. Dr. Mary. Hi, Susan. Yeah. CBN is very easy to produce. We produce it at my Orlando facility, uh, Uh, regularly you can put it into a pill or into a uh, tincture so uh, this is early data it's exciting data and supports you know some previous data we have on cannabis in general being protective Uh, but uh, but it should be easy to find if you're interested in finding a pure source to treat Uh, you know by our by our evaluation it seems as though it binds a little less tightly than cbd or thc so it's better to use it in a pure form and you know i'm out here at champs and a whole bunch of people have cbn products combined with a little kratom cbn and d8 and kratom for sleep something to think about also
2: do you know oh, regular flower? like if we like let weed sit out is there think- like a time where
6: where thc um we know that there's it's a good question. I mean, I think the longer you can leave it out and give it exposure to sunlight, you'll convert more. But, you know, you can just get the pure form, and it probably is wise if you're treating something like Alzheimer's or, or a more advanced memory loss to use a more potent, pure product, I would think.
5: Interestingly, these researchers actually created their own CBN from a yeah. monoterpene and, um, uh, um, let's see, olivetol. Olivetol. So they created their own CBN. Um, mm-hmm. Under a DEA license uh, for this research,
0: Doctor Felicia, are we are we basically saying that CBN is the fountain of youth? Oh
2: man!
4: I, I know that Olam actually did a uh, uh, Alzheimer research study back in 2019, and I think it was like like 38 out of 42 of the patients ended up reversing uh, the effects of uh,
5: Alzheimer.
4: So, that was something. It was very CBN uh, rich brain that they were using.
0: And by the way, I just want to make sure that people don't leave their weed out trying to get more CBN because it makes it dry and the
2: <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that amazing information, Dr. Felicia. We're always so enlightened to hear the things that you impart on us. So thank you for that. And more information on CBN, obviously very necessary. Um, and up next, we have Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith is a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report and our very own Clark Kent. What do you have for us today, Superman?
7: Well, I'm
3: going to try to actually work this thing. Thank you, thank you very much, Nicole. Good morning, Rico, and good morning, Susan. My headline today is from Tom Backus at Cannabis. Net. Uh, the marijuana industry's biggest lie, cannabis branding matters to consumers. So a new survey is out that confirms what every other study has reported in the past about cannabis branding and marketing. It just doesn't matter to consumers. They don't remember what your logo, your colors, or your packaging looks like a few days after buying your product. The three factors they remember are how much the product costs, how well did the product work, and where did they get it. Branding is not even in the top 10 results when consumers listed reasons they purchased a certain product. Over four out of five consumers said a brand's reputation did not matter when making a final purchasing decision. So this this theory, which is about adult use products only, suggests that for most people, their decision about which product they buy is strictly practical. They want to go to their usual spot. They don't overspend and they get reliably high. That's all they care about. Uh, In 2020, New Frontier data came out with a study that shows marijuana buyers are much more price and quality conscious than anything else. Branding was dead last. A 2020 article about the subject even said that the cannabis branding myth, consumers don't know what they bought or how much they took. So there's many, obviously, as we all know in this room, there are many uh, branding challenges in cannabis. You know, cannabis is an agricultural commodity. I can really only think of three agricultural brands uh, in my whole lifetime, Chiquita Bananas, Dole Pineapples, and Green Giant perhaps, but those brands spent millions over decades on mainstream channels, and cannabis can't do that, and the brand is a promise, right, that a company will deliver what it promises, but if a brand can't deliver product month after month after month, consumers will forget. Um, you might be loyal to your state, for example, but of course, all cannabis now is um, is local. It's all uh, in state. You might be local to your region, but how do you choose from all of the different Humboldt brands, for example, or or sun-grown brands or indoor brands? How do you know which is which? So we'll get back to that in a second. Strains, we have a problem with strains because. Strains are not exclusively aligned with companies, right? So whose White Widow or OG Kush are did you buy? And do you really care? Um, and the regulations, of course, are, are uh, you know crushing us in terms of branding, right? Product branding is not allowed on social media at all. Um, and if you look at the Canadian market, branding is completely dead because it's just not allowed. So if consumers don't trust brands, who do they trust? Um the article suggests really the key to the purchasing process is the bud tender. So what should, I, in my opinion, what should brands do about this? So I, I think that brands need to be much better at telling a story, right? Uh, does anyone remember, for example, um, in, in the company Papa and Barclay, who is Barclay? Uh, we'll talk about that in a second um i do uh, another brand that i thought was a great storytelling brand was lowells uh uh lowell farms for example um, another thing is don't pay for shelf space pay for advertising pay for the pay for the uh the dispensary's advertising rather than for shelf space because the dispensary is the key to your sales um the the Article suggests you need to get your ass into every single dispensary you can, of course, and obviously focus on urban ones where there are the most people. Um, I think you could create training programs for bud tenders to help them understand your brand. And and also, by the way, I don't think it would be a terrible idea to tip the bud tenders if you're a brand, if you're a company, um, give them a little bit of extra incentive to work a little harder for your brand uh, because they're the key to uh, reaching the consumers. Happy to hear what uh, people think in the room.
8: Christopher, I have a question. Do you think branding becomes more important when there's interstate commerce?
3: Well, probably, like, everything, yeah. Uh, but it, I, it's it still – well, so with interstate commerce, do you think that, it, that the mainstream channels will open up also? That's, I guess, part of the question. Will they be allowed to? I think
8: it, I think it creates more of a following I, for products. I, yeah, hey, if I go hey, on hey, vacation good. and can get what I want, what I like at home, I think that matters a lot.
4: Sure. I, we can't –
2: here. we are literally so far behind Oops. in this industry like this is not this is not the way that the industry will be this is the way the industry is currently and so very importantly to understand not only where we are, but where we're going. And so this is the infancy of an industry, and yes, that is the case. But as you see and as you move forward, you will understand that the main key is going to be to get to the consumer as the big picture is concerned. At this exact moment, yes, but I, I completely disagree uh, with almost everything that came out of that in, in that interaction as far as what the industry will be and how we're evolving. Um, but yes, in an infancy state, uh, the only thing that unfortunately matters is one, for your shelf space and two getting the bud tender to buy in and after that we're going to start to have a real direct to consumer and once direct to consumer takes over none of that's going to fucking matter it's going to be all about branding
0: let's go branding uh huh (laughs)
2: Your branding
7: and your message can be absolutely perfect, but the person behind the counter doesn't have any qualifications or doesn't even need a certification to be able to give that medicine to somebody else. So it doesn't matter how good your branding is because if the bud tender behind that desk doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're just gonna push whoever incentivized them, which pretty sure we're not allowed to do that in California, or it's very much frowned upon. You're not supposed to incentivize the bud tenders because what they're gonna do is only push the product that they're getting that they're getting incentivized to push. And what is that product gonna be? Boof, candy.
4: Right. And and if and if you're buying online, it's whoever pays the most to get that top slot, or whatever the cheapest is because a lot of people are buying online don't know what the fuck i'm
0: about. totally fine with
4: incentivizing
0: butt tenders and butt
4: maggie,
7: yeah maggie you just pointed it out that's the biggest problem that's why you need to go direct to consumer that's the push and that's why I like what nicole's saying good points everyone thank you let's keep smoking All the news can't afford to pay butt tenders to incentiviz- incentivizations
4: Yes. All right. So this dope Midwest mom is one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history, the CEO of award Women winning Original Breeders League, 2021 MJ BizCon's coveted Golden Bong Influencer of the Year winner, and most importantly, one of the dopest moms on the planet. Coming to the stage next is Priscilla Agoncillo. What you got for us this morning, Pete?
10: Hey.
11: Thank you so much, Dope Dad. Um, So my article is, Cops seize hundreds of pounds of pot and arrest five on charges they illegally sold weed from stores. Undercover Bergen County detectives bought cannabis from four Dirty Jersey Supplies locations. In their six-month investigation, it culminated in arrests and search warrants (laughs) at multiple locations that yielded hundreds of pounds of cannabis, THC edibles, wax, oil, and about $305,000 in cash one of their arrests was Dirty Jersey owners Michael Ligas 24 of Ringwood and Damien Wessler Sr. 44 of Franklin Lakes, who were pulled over in a Cadillac SUV which detectives found more than 50 pounds of cannabis multiple vehicles were also impounded in the investigation the investigation started at the Dirty Jersey Englewood location and detectives also made purchases at stores in Butler Randolph and Scotch Plains as New Jersey lawmakers and leaders adjust cannabis laws in anticipation of a legal, regulated cannabis market, it is currently illegal to sell cannabis from an unregulated retail storefront location. Governor uh, Phil Murphy of New Jersey said the state might delay its self-imposed February 22 deadline to open up the consumer cannabis market, saying there is still so much work to be done and that he'd rather get it right than get it fast. Also arrested Friday, Damian Wessler Jr., 22, of Secaucus, authorities identified as the dirty Jersey operator, Anthony Garcia, 44 of secaucus who authorities say held himself out as the dirty jersey owner uh there was also a sad arrest for ezekiel Polino, 25 rutherford uh, rutherford he was just a store clerk according to uh, this company's website they also have locations in vernon and secaucus dirty jersey also plans to open stores in patterson and harlem in new york city this is the latest rate of operations of the so-called gifting scheme operations in the cannabis gray market. Collectively, they will face charges of cannabis possession, intent to distribute, and even money laundering. This is Priscilla reporting on the dirt of jurors for the News Hour.
4: Jersey is so
12: dirty. It's like a used bong.
11: That hasn't been cleaned.
12: <laughs> That's why it's dirty. I wonder how many resources went into that investigation. You said it was six months
11: yeah, total? Six months total. I mean, there.
4: How much? How much resources is that, uh, Chris? Like six months total investigation. How much money? How much taxpayer money is put in? I mean, that?
12: I, you know, that's a great question. I couldn't even put a number on it um, without knowing the personnel, pay wages, etc. But you know, I, I think it's probably going to be longer than six months, given the prep time and then you know court follow up, you know, all the investigative follow up. So I think it's going to be much longer than that.
11: Well a lot of these companies are really blatant about what they're doing. I mean, they're I mean th- this operation has how many stores? They're advertising it on their website. They're just thinking it's a free for all. I personally know of like three others that opened up just within the last few months. So, you know, people are thinking that they're not going to get in trouble and you clearly can. So,
0: Rico, uh, th- those fees are subsidized for law enforcement because after they they make the bust, they just resell the weed. And they
4: have those sweet photo ops that they put on Instagram.
12: They love the photo ops, Rico. They love them so much. You know this,
0: Chris. The bigger the bus, the bigger the booth.
12: Oh, the more photos well, taken
2: what a great parlay for us to go into chris eggers somebody who i hope's never taken a photo holding a gun next to pounds of weeds that he seized never. but now hell good good to know former reader of your miranda turned passer of the reefer cannabis security consultant and the founder of cc security solutions helping us keep our places safe chris what do you have for us today
12: i probably have the most photos as a cop with dogs though um i would always hop out and in pet the good boys when I saw them in downtown San Francisco. But um, my article today comes out of the San Diego union tribune. The headline reads national city to open an application process for cannabis businesses. So three parts to this applicants will need to pay $11,000 during the three-step process. They're going to start accepting applications today and that will run for 60 days or until April 7th. You must submit your application in person to the city's finance department. So national city adopted its cannabis ordinance back, back in May of last year, allowing up to six business licenses for retail, sales, cultivation, distribution, manufacturing, transportation of cannabis and cannabis-related products in industrial zones. Of the six permits, one will be reserved for a consumption lounge to operate within the city's tourist commercial zone, which is uh, just west of Interstate 5, or I think in, in uh, Southern California, they just say the 5, I I'm in Northern California. Um, anyway, two permits will be reserved for applicants who are local business owners, which the city defines as someone who has lived in national. City for at least three years prior to November 9th, 2021, and they have to hold 51% ownership. So to apply, they have to pay about thousand, uh, sorry, $11,000, which will cover a deposit, background check, and multiple reviews of, of the applicant and application. So national city council members approved the permit fee in December, which the city said falls within the average cost between $7,000 and $10,000 set by other San Diego County cities. Um, the estimated $11,000 will be paid as applicants move along to the three-phased application process. The first phase is going to be to uh, see if the business meets minimum eligibility requirements and will cost the applicant 8 uh, $1,900. Uh there will be a $350 background check fee uh, per owner. Uh, and then if you want, let's say, sorry, let me move on to phase three now. Phase three includes $5,000 deposit to receive cannabis license and then enter into a development agreement with the city. The city council would have to then have a, a final approval and allow the business to apply for a land use permit and business license. Now, if a business wants to appeal the process, let's say that you the applicant disagrees with how the city scores the application, that business will have to pay a fee of 3500 Dollars and uh, r- roughly three thousand six hundred dollars. The city will revisit uh, fees annually and adjust permit costs uh, as necessary, according to city staff. And application forms are available today on their website. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I thought that uh, it was important to note they had to pay roughly three thousand six hundred bucks if they want to, um, you know, if they disagree with how their application was scored. Uh, curious to see what anybody thinks and if any folks down in uh, San Diego might be in the audience.
2: Wait, so they have to pay to contest?
12: Yep. So if a business, okay, so a quote, right? If a business wants to appeal the process, such as if the applicant disagrees with how the city scores its application, the business will have to pay a fee of $3,586. Holy
2: shit. There's definitely been an annoying part of like requesting the documentation, and I've gone through this several times with big cities and little cities to be like, hey, how did we get to that point? Because some of these companies, these HDIs and stuff, are I feel like very hit or miss in their uh, scoring process, but I've never had to see anybody have to pay to see their results that seems like uh, i just i mean that seems unfair like i don't even know what other word to use it's fucking ridiculous
0: it's the definition of pay to play
2: pay to check if you played right <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> pay to argue if you think you played
12: paid right <laughs> i'm feeling broke just
2: listening right? to this shit i fucking like what the fuck like if you're actually trying to get the like 3600 dollars just to be like what did i do wrong you know, just so you can better understand, like even if your whole purpose is just so you can do better next time, you know, like you pay money to figure that out. I'm just over here yeah, counting yeah.
4: cash, you guys. So up next, she's uh, up next, she's the CMO of Event High and advisor of International Cannabis Business Women Association, board member for the San Diego Americans for Safe Access, co-host of Blunt Brunch event series, and one of my fave people in the industry for nearly six years now. Up next is Adelia Carillo, what you got for us this morning, Delia?
13: Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. So today's article is, Is Cannabis Legalization Killing Weed Events? uh, by Chris Roberts of Cannabis Now. Uh, The article begins by highlighting the past uh, Harvest Ball, which was formerly known as the Emerald Cup, uh, but states an obvious challenge for consumers to get their hands on cannabis uh, unless... They waited in lengthy lines or from the article standpoint, it's running afoul of the law. The Harvest Ball was also the first cannabis consumer forward event to happen under the watchful eye of the new DCC um, but according to the event organizers and the attendees, things were extremely difficult. Uh, one thing that came to you know the forefront is that they need the state law to be significantly revised to allow farmers to sell directly to consumers and to loosen rules around what stashes can be sold or not. Uh, Taylor Blake, uh, who is now the... Who's now the um, yeah Taylor Blake, the event uh, the events co producer and daughter of Tim Blake, uh, states they need modifications so the future events are viable. Uh, As of right now, you know vendors pay money for booths so attendees can come and give them money for whatever they're selling, whether it's t shirts or cannabis. Uh, However, it's really challenging for them to sell cannabis under the state law. um, They I already stated that. Um, Almost every cannabis brand had product available at their booths. However, not every single brand or booth – vendor had a state license and as we all know they're expensive if you're not in the retail sector why would you have that license at the end of the day so you had only very limited options you could sell you could agree to sell under the event license which would cut 50% cut of your gross Uh, you could sign up as a small farmer which you would set some inventory aside for single sales counter Um, and On top of that, uh, when it comes to the visitor's perspective, they had to go through the process of taking notes, trying to remember what they wanted to order, then go to this other line, wait there for an hour, then try to express and take their order with the overworked attendant who was placing uh, these orders for these brands? Um, on top of that, the DCC was hassling licensed farmers with booths who were showing their samples of their product. Uh, stated Trevor Wood, uh, who's a second-generation grower, um, and you know just a couple things to highlight. Uh, so the biggest thing is, you know, fix the cultivation tax, um, allow for farmers to sell directly to consumer, um, in the COVID era, start relaxing some of these rules, uh, that some believe have strangled the Emerald cup and similar gatherings. And then from my perspective, you know, we need to also look at a viable option for the CEO license. We need a light, a micro CEO license. There are thousands of event organizers in California who host very small, intimate events and they want to do it legally and they want to have a license, but it's just not attainable with the current uh, fees that they have for the CEO license. So with that being said, this is Adelia and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We need
1: to figure out a way to get local governments on board too. That's that's such a big problem. Mhm. Agreed. I miss the old days. So much
2: fun.
4: So little boof.
2: The ability to get like a temporary liquor license for an event is so easy, and like the process as compared to what we're dealing with with cannabis. um, I just definitely feel like we should be able to have something at least, um, you know, comparable. There's 83 83
1: license types
2: for alcohol. Yeah, you could.
1: In California, 80 Many, 80
2: and like you can just hire a catering company that comes with their own for your wedding. You know what I mean? So like that reality that you can have like a traveling version of something like that. I think why why is that not um, an option for us?
0: Is it just me, or am I the only one that misses the terps of PGR weed?
1: Explain. Explain. Uh- <laughs> And shut up, (laughs) bro. We need to keep smoking so that we can get Shalina's story in. All right. Well, thank you so much for
2: that headline and definitely something that we want to uh, follow along. And it's really important for uh, all of us here at State of Cannabis News because we definitely are focused on making sure that we have some State of Cannabis events with some policy-focused events with cannabis. So very ex- exciting and important. But up next, we have Shalina Panu. Shalina is an entertainment and cannabis attorney and talent agent and the at Cloutier, the remix agency,
10: and the founder of Shall We Toke? What do you have for us today, Shalina? Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Let Cannabis Play During the Super Bowl. Weedmaps released a new digital commercial that's meant to be played for the Super Bowl. However, it won't be allowed to due to current federal restrictions. This hilarious commercial addresses key concerns in regards to advertising restrictions and social media bans imposed on legal cannabis businesses and products. In the commercial, a man is dressed as a broccoli, casually going throughout his day at the office, all while two co-workers coworkers make comments and jokes about smoking cannabis. I know I'm not the only one this has happened to. The purpose of this ad was to draw attention to the fact that cannabis is normalized to some degree, degree, particularly in the 37 states that have taken action to legalize the plant. However, cannabis still faces large discrimination as is evident. This is where the complexities of advertising take place. There are so many differences in restrictions on the local, state, and federal level, which causes nothing but constant confusion and dismay for cannabis companies and even users. Restrictions for advertising include where the ad can be placed and also seeking approval first from the building owner. The discretion given to people and different agencies is completely unfair and unreasonable why this is why we need a better system. The reason maps use a broccoli in their commercial as a depiction of cannabis is because the actual plant is considered to be inappropriate. Makes no sense, right? Censorship and shadow banning in the cannabis community is very real. I personally know numerous companies and very well-known people in this cannabis industry who have had their accounts shadow banned, thus making it impossible to reach more people, as well as completely banning some of their accounts outright. All the while, certain other certain companies continue to thrive without any repercussions or restrictions to their accounts. It seems kind of odd, don't you think? The discriminatory practices of social media by even determining which cannabis company is allowed to succeed or not is all too present. This is why R.N. Richard, who created WeTube after his YouTube page was shut down after amassing nearly 200,000 followers. He decided to create WeTube for content creators, especially in the cannabis space who have been shadow banned or completely shut down. The problem with shadow banning and shutting down accounts is that these accounts are not just advocating smoking the ganja. A lot of these accounts do provide valuable information and content regarding cannabis. The reason this industry has progressed so much in this last decade alone has been primarily the power of digital social media. This is where people like us who make up the cannabis community need to band together and continue this fight that we've been on. It's up to us to make sure that one day a cannabis ad will be played so proudly and beautifully during the most anticipated live sports game in the world. And if we do this right, cannabis won't be depicted as a vegetable that most people dislike. My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis
7: News Hour.
1: Thank you so much, Shalina. We are at time. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that combed through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know a big thank you to nicole and rico for co-producing the show with me thank you to our pinup girl liz rogan thank you audience for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city county state or country your addition to our show makes the state of cannabis news hour news you can trust
0: smoke more broccoli You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
1: Thanks, everyone. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.